Hello. Hello. Hi, Terry. Nice to meet you all. Oh, we're so excited to to have you. I love listening to your voice. I got to say, your voice is really awesome, Terry. (laughs) Well, thank you for that. The funny thing about that is I spent most of my career as a commercial director. So I was never in front of the microphone for, for the bulk of my career in advertising. And then when a friend of mine and myself pitched this show idea to CBC, it was my first time in front of the mic after you know almost 40 years in the ad business. So it was brand new to me. You, you gotta have an eye. Third Eye Education. Third eye. Welcome to Third Eye. Today, we have a very special guest, Terry O'Reilly. O'Reilly got his start in advertising and he found he had a knack for writing commercials. In 1990, O'Reilly co-founded the production company Pirate Radio and Television, has directed actors such as Alec Baldwin, Ellen DeGeneres, Bob Newhart, and Martin Short. Additionally, O'Reilly has well over 100 awards, including three Lifetime Achievement Awards. Currently, O'Reilly's CBC radio show Under the Influence attracts over a million listeners each week. He has also written two books, his most recent, The Sino Marketing Lessons from Under the Influence, is a national bestseller. This episode, also joined by Anne Halliwell, who is a journalist in Rochester, Minnesota, and also is editing this episode. Thank you very much. Terry, as educators, we need a lot of the same skills uh, that advertisers use. We use them to engage, to motivate our students, and wondering what you'd recommend to our listeners for applying those practices. The interesting thing about advertising is people are not interested in it as a rule. In other words, an ad is usually always an intrusion on something else they were there to watch or listen to. And that poses a very interesting problem for marketers because you don't want to create something where people are zapping or putting it on mute or going to another channel. Like my dad, for example, when a commercial would come on TV, he would switch to another channel, watch something for three minutes and then switch back. He knew exactly how much time to avoid a commercial island, which is so funny because his son went into advertising. But because most people like to avoid advertising, that means that the messages have to try and capture someone's attention within the first 10 seconds of a 30-second commercial. There has to be a, a high degree of creativity in that message. Because it's not like journalism where they say, don't bury the lead, start your article in a newspaper with what you're talking about. Advertisers can never do that. We have to bury the lead. In other words, we have to intrigue you to such a degree in the first 10 seconds that we can get to the lead. So the tools we employ are things like a high degree of creativity, using storytelling, of which I am a huge proponent trying to get somebody to look at a product in a fresh way. You know, the best kind of commercial is when someone sees, maybe it's a commercial for a battery and you think, I have never thought of batteries that way before. If you can get somebody to look at something that they've seen forever, but from a fresh angle, then the chances of them remembering your message or filing your message go way up. And then just really trying to make that message enjoyable. In other words, that if you're going to take 30 seconds of their time, be a good host to their time. In other words, make them smile, make them laugh, make them think. The one piece that I would struggle as an educator to apply from what you're talking about is introducing material in a way that would surprise my class. How do you manage to make sure you do that? If you've ever listened to any of my podcasts or radio shows, you'll note that I start with an opening story. 
that seems unrelated to what eventually will be the theme of that show. And the reason I do that is I'm really setting the table for the show. In other words, I'm setting a tone and I want to arouse some curiosity in the subject. Once I've figured out what the show is about, I know how I have to set that table. I, I'm a story hunter, Nick, to begin with. So I'm always hunting for great stories. For example, on a recent show where I was talking about the fact that many products are turning 50 years old, I told an opening story about a guest on the Dick Cavett show in 1971, who was a health fanatic and said he was into healthy living and eating organic. He was 75, I think he was, but he said he could feel like he could do backflips and I'm going to live to be 100. And he died on the set of that show that night. And Dick Cavett has gone on to say that there isn't a year that goes by where he's not asked about that episode at least 20 times a year. So I was using that story as just a setup that had happened in 71, that Dick Cavett gets reminded of that show for 50 years. I know I got people's attention with the surprise of that story. Something you were talking about, Terry, that was really interesting to me is, is the way you back design. And in education, we commonly talk about backwards design as well, identifying the skills that we want our students to know and be able to do, and then deciding how will we assess that? What will be our check-ins along the way? What product will we be using as a way to help those students create those skills? And a lot of staff will begin with some type of anticipatory set. Something along the lines of asking kids sometimes unique questions. I think that's really honestly what you've talked about is creating right. a frame. Heather, that's exactly right. Because remember what my show is not aimed at marketers, even though it's a show about marketing, it's aimed at the average person to explain how the world of marketing works. Marketing can be a very dry subject if handled in a kind of a, uh, a textbook way, so to speak. So I really have to go another way with it. I have to make the stories intriguing and interesting and look for the little colorful moments to write around, you know, give people little epiphanies along the way and giving them something to talk about over the dinner table that night. And here's the other thing too, which is funny. When we first pitched this show to CBC, I had... It, the genesis of it was I used to hold a creative radio day once a year where I would rent a big theater in downtown. I would invite 200 young copywriters, ad writers, and I would get up on a stage for seven hours and I would teach them how to create effective radio. And I would talk about script structure, dialogue versus humor, 30 seconds versus 60 seconds, the use of music, studio protocol, how to deal with actors, all of that. One day, a friend of mine said, you know, that would make a great radio show. And I said, who would ever run that? And he said, CBC would. We pitched this show to them saying that advertising is that, that weird kind of thing where most people don't like it, feel it's intrusive. But in fact, it really is the study of human nature. And we want to bring people backstage, like a cook's tour of advertising. When I explore advertising campaigns that are current or I'm exploring a campaign that was famous from decades ago, I'm always trying to not only tell the story of how it came to be, but the effect it had in the marketplace and the techniques or craftsmanship at work that made you buy that product. You know, if you can tell people a story about themselves, they will be forever interested. And that's what I try and do. We've talked a little bit about getting people interested in lessons in the advertising just to start to hook them. Yes. But you talked about doing a seven hour class on advertising. How are you keeping people from squirming around in their seat for an entire seven hours? <laughs> are you just, is it constant hooks every couple of minutes? Yeah, 
I think that's probably that day, even though it was a long day, it had lots of chunks in it. Like it, it had a, a lot of different topics I was going to cover. And each week was really interesting. I could tell firsthand stories about working with Alec Baldwin or Bob Newhart and the, the difference between those two actors and how they like to work in the studio. Or if I'm talking about humor versus drama, then how can you tell a story in 30 seconds? So all of that, I tried to illuminate with stories. It was always not just the mechanics of it, but stories to make a point meaningful. Would you try to apply this to educational research? And I believe John Hattie talks about utilizing metaphor and illusion, create that story for students to apply their knowledge into a mental framework that works for them. I think that's the through line here, right? Uh, Advertising have that strong storyline so that things stick with you. I suppose we don't have jingles in education, but that's another strong... uh, Maybe that should be the outcome we have, of this We episode. have jingles. Yeah. We have jingles in education. Just simply go to an elementary classroom when they're oh, when yeah. they're trying to teach how to remember certain things. Jingles That's exist. That's right, they're ABC. Yeah, absolutely. And there's like songs for memorizing the capitals. Uh, there's all kinds of jingles that are out there. It's very funny. Sorry to interrupt, but just very quickly. It's very interesting that jingles fell out of favor in the advertising business. In the 80s, what happened was MTV came and then suddenly pop music got really like front and center on our televisions, not just our radios. And then artists started to license their music to advertising for the first time. And when that happened, jingles fell out of favor and never really came back yet. Just as you're saying, Heather, jingles are such great memory vehicles. Learning your ABCs, if trying to figure out which which month has 31 days or 30, you instantly start to sing that little mnemonic, right? 30 days has September, April, June, and November, yet we don't use them anymore. That's really interesting because when I think about the entrance to your podcast, it's a series of jingles. They're still very much a part of our lives. They really are. I'm also curious, you know, Anne was talking about the uh, long form versus short form, and you keep talking about these 30-second chunks. For a while in education, we were talking about the change in attention span of really everybody, but the youth in particular. I'm curious if you've always had success with the 30 seconds because attention spans have never had to be below 30 seconds, or if there's something else going on there with long form versus short form. I think the last time I checked, we were sitting at three minutes of student attention before we needed to switch topic. I mean, I'm not a teacher and I'm not in the classroom. My oldest daughter is a teacher, by the way, in London, England. Yeah. Well, we celebrate her. The interesting thing about attention spans to me is advertising's got shorter and shorter and shorter over time. So in the early days, commercials were two minutes long. Then they were 60 seconds and then 30 seconds and then 10 seconds and then six seconds. And then you got five second ads on before you can skip on YouTube. And there's even been one second commercials in the world, believe it or not. One of them won an award. That's how good it was. But I never worry about that. Even in my radio show, I don't worry about that because my belief is if you're telling a story, a great story, people will listen. And I look at movies when I say that, too, because movies are still two hours long, like they've been since the beginning of of Hollywood. They haven't shrunk to be seven minute movies or something. And a lot of the listeners of our radio show are young, by the way, which is quite surprising to me. But again, we'll get tons of emails from, you know, the typical email we'll get is, hi, I'm 12 years old and I love your show. And I think it's the storytelling. I don't think, you know, a 12 year old is that interested in the world of marketing per se. But I think it's the storytelling involved in that show. I tell six stories in a show. That's my internal structure. An opening story, as we discussed earlier, and then five stories, and then a summation about what it all means. And I think it's the storytelling that appeals to my younger audience. 
I have to agree. Yeah, we've heard this over and over from other educators that we've talked to and people in the advertising type business. Stel- storytelling is the way to get to the masses this way. Kind of get excited about hearing about this, how we can create maybe the elevator speech that gets you into the next level. Right. So that it just gets their appetite started. Tell me more. Let's talk about elevator pitches for a moment because I'm a big fan of those. The great thing about an elevator pitch, I mean, think of that as your opening story, right? It's to get people to lean in. You're not giving away everything. An elevator pitch doesn't have to contain your entire story. It has to be enough to make people want to lean in and know more. Actually, my favorite elevator pitch of all time was for Wired Magazine. When they were looking for funding, when they were just an idea trying to get off the ground, they went in to see investors and and their elevator pitch was this. They said, we want our magazine to feel like it's been mailed back from the future. And what a great elevator pitch that is. Like it tells you everything you need to know about that magazine in a beautiful set of words. The great thing about an elevator pitch is it focuses your goal. It makes you distill your idea down to its essence. And that essence becomes your lighthouse down the road. I learned my lesson once I sent out a memo to parents and community people. And it was a multi-page sort of, you know, year in review. And I, I really thought this was some of my best work. And I found <laughs> out that nobody read it. Or they did. They read like the first paragraph maybe. And they were like, oh, there's just too much more stuff. The other rule of a great ad is to sell one thing well. And that is the rule most often broken in advertising, by the way. And I think that is a great rule to have in any presentation. Most bad advertising tries to sell three or four things or more in a single. And it gets to be too much for people. I can't grasp one idea. It's like if I had six apples in my hand and I threw them at you, you'll probably catch one. So in our world, I think we're talking about essential learning outcomes. What are the key things that we're trying to get to? And you might have a few sub points like uh, what success look like in those areas. And we spent years crafting these in their living documents that we update. I think Rochester nearby spent like 15 years trying to get these things wow. together. And I do think part of the power of what you're talking about is that you could, on any given day, do the elevator pitch for that lesson as opposed to, here's the elevator pitch for an entire year. No, for the lesson, yeah. And, and is there a way to boil that process down so it's not taking 15 years to get an elevator pitch for a <laughs> Okay, make no no mistake about it. An elevator pitch is one of the most difficult things to do. I mean, remember Dirty Harry? The elevator pitch for Dirty Harry was that Dirty Harry was more violent than the criminals he chased. And when you think about that, that is exactly what was so riveting about that character. We had never really seen that. So they distilled it down. So I think when you're thinking about a lesson, if I may be so bold, What's the thing that I want to communicate? And then what's the most interesting way I can do that? Just very single-minded. We have a board meeting tonight. We're going to talk about why we have to wear masks in school. And we have people that are in support of the idea and some that are not. Any suggestions? Wow. I think that's uh, beyond my pay scale, but... Um... <laughs> I mean, it's different, but it shares in common what advertisers face in that there is this wall of, of disinterest in advertising that you have to cross. You have What all good advertising does is it finds the element in the product that's most meaningful to that segment of the population. And I wonder, it's trying to find what's meaningful to the, to the non-maskers, if that's the, the other mm-hmm. side of the table. It's just trying to get inside their shoes for a moment rather than battling them. In advertising, it's research. 
talking to existing customers and then talking to potential customers that are not buying your product. Even when I would have a meeting, Mike, with a new client, one of my first questions was always, what's stepping on your garden hose? Because what I'm trying to figure out is what's stopping the flow of revenue at your end? What are the obstacles in the marketplace? Because those are the things that I really want to figure out a way around. Sounds like having a focus group, and maybe I have to look at this group as a focus group, like what's stopping us? How do we get to that spot where we all can find agreement to? It sounds like, Terry, that you've been utilizing human-centered design for far longer than that term has been in popular parlance. What's the need? How can I be empathetic to my audience? And then how do I design how I approach the situation around that? Am I, am I capturing that correctly? No, 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 you're exactly right. And, the, and maybe the fourth little element there is how does this product actually fit into someone's life? You know how some products will present themselves as they'll change your life and it's underarm deodorant. That's just not going to happen. So how is this all fit into your life? You're pulling all these amazing concepts and tools and strategies and you're meeting all these people. How, how has it impacted you and your, your daughter, who's a teacher? And how has this all played into your world? Well, we're a very pop culture oriented family as a result of the dinner table talk that's happened over the years. You can I can definitely say that to you. Um, I think we're all collectively fascinated by human nature in my family, always looking to tell each other's stories. So like, again, I'm hearkening back to stories, but we're a storytelling family. That sounds lovely. And I'm trying to imagine now what your daughter would be like as a teacher. Have you ever had the pleasure slash honor of observing her? Like, No, I have never done that. No. That's a lot of skills that you can bring into a class. If you get the chance, come back. Tell us, uh, tell us how you saw the the intersection between our uh, worlds. Yeah, I, would love, I would love to. I would love to be a little fly on the wall one day in her classroom. One thing, Terry, I want to go back to the the twelve year old and the individuals who are saying, "Oh, I love your show." I know you say that your show is about advertising, but when I describe your show, I often talk about how it's about history through the lens yeah. of advertising. I personally see that in in classes that element of story, which can be huge in a subject area like history or like science. There's so much history that that can be webbed in no matter what you're teaching art, right? And you're using that lens or that history, you're using those stories to show that arc of growth and change. History is a big part of what I do. I love history, but I, I also love the history of the marketing industry of Madison Avenue, so to speak, because there's a lot of learning in that. Like, for example, when you watch a commercial that's a torture test on some product, when you realize where that started and why, and why that was so successful in 1953, when you kind of reverse engineer it and pick it apart, you then really see how it works in our age. I'm also an avid reader, so I'm always looking through old bookstores and eBay and Amazon for old advertising books. I find there's so much learning in the early days of our industry. I want to point out to our listeners, we've talked about jingles at the elementary level. We've talked about the application in English. Clearly, this is application in history. One of the best math lessons I've seen was talking about that old game show, The Name Eludes Me, but it's like you have three doors. The Price is Right. Yeah. Is that, what it is? is that what it was? The price is right. Yeah. Door number one, door number two, or door number three. Yep. And there is this wonderful proof that if you select door number one and they say, well, uh, would you like to change your mind? That if you change your mind, you're going to have better outcomes. 
and you can go through all the evidence of it. And the math teacher did this through this lens of a story. And again, storytelling is not just relegated to a single world of content. We are storytelling creatures. I think it's built into our DNA. It's from caveman days of telling stories around a campfire and how knowledge was passed along from parents to children and the wisdom of the tribes, so to speak. We're also emotion-seeking creatures that information goes in through the heart and not really the head. And that's why I think great stories are aimed at the heart. Yeah, in education, we often talk about the why and how in certain content areas, well, in all content areas, unless the students really know why. Exactly. I remember uh, seeing this wonderful public service announcement you just reminded me of in Europe. It was trying to get people to stop speeding through neighborhood. They made me look at it in a new way. They said something like, if you were to hit a child with your car driving 30 miles an hour, that child has an 80% chance of living. If you hit that child at 45 miles per hour, that child has an 80% chance of dying. And I have never forgotten that. It has affected the way I drive because they made me look at an age-old thing in a completely different way. We like to end our shows with In the Blink of Three Eyes. It's a way for us to really get down to our meat of why we have these sessions. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. What podcast, book, show, or whatnot has been influencing your thinking lately? I'll tell you a podcast because we're podcasters, so we listen to a lot of podcasts. A podcast I'm enjoying right now is called The Plot Thickens. It's hosted by Ben Mankiewicz, who you'll recognize as the host of TCM, the uh, Turner Classic Movies channel. He explores wonderful aspects of Hollywood, but his inside knowledge, his storytelling, and his ability to to root out really interesting facts has got me just reevaluating certain people in the industry We really value innovation. And what is one innovation that you've seen recently or you really would like to see? It has, I mean, it's an easy answer, but it's it's social media has changed my industry completely as it has changed the world. But what it's done to my industry is it's made it a two-way conversation. A 12-year-old can get a message to the CEO of a company on Twitter or Instagram. That access is uh, extraordinary. I'm going to read what it normally is, but then I'm going to modify it because it's you. So our normal question is, listeners inspired by today's conversation may want to take action on their learning, and what might that first action be? For you, Terry, though, I'd like to say, what is the elevator pitch for the world coming together between advertising and education? I think my elevator pitch would be, what is the story I can tell my class that will make them still sit in their seats when the bell rings? Ho, ho, ho. Beautiful. And you said elevator pitches are hard. Oh, this has been great. Thank you so much for finding the time. I know you've been super, super busy as of late. Congratulations. You've got a new book coming out, Terry. Yes, I do. Thanks for remembering that. It's called My Best Mistake. It's not a book about marketing. So it's a book about people who have made catastrophic career decisions where they've lost their credibility, their job, their revenue, and almost their sanity. And it ended up being the best thing that had ever happened to them. I instantly thought of a common teaching strategy that we use, which is called my favorite no, which is no, that's not the correct answer. But a lot of students do that. So let's explore why it's wrong. So I know it's not about education, but I highly guess it's going to be very applicable to our field. 
It was a lot of fun and very illuminating to write. And let me just add one more thing. Now that you've said that, we have a podcast network called the Apostrophe Podcast Network. And if you were to just search that, Google that, we have about five different podcasts on our network. And you might find another show you might like too. One of the podcasts on Apostrophe is called We Regret to Inform You, The Rejection Podcast. Mm -hmm. Not unlike what you were saying, where we tell stories of very successful people and we tell all the rejections they got all the way along the line and how they overcame them to the point where they became successful. And I think students would really love that podcast because it's so inspiring to hear that successful people that you're so familiar with had so many career rejections and still succeed. Uh, Thank you again, Terry, so much. We really appreciate you spending your time with us. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, folks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you again to Terry O'Reilly, as well as Anne Hallowell. Thank you, as always, to Dover Iota for supporting this podcast. Thank you to Mike Carolyn, Heather Lake, and Nick Truxel, our hosts. Thank you to Michael Terrell for our theme song. As always, thank you, our listeners. Feel free to reach out and say hello. Or follow us on social media, whatever you prefer. Join us next time for a special guest, Joy Scott Ressler, educational editor, and for our final episode of this season with Anna Tavis, a world-renowned people analytics expert. We'll see you next time on Third Eye.